Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Will Vakurvich, one of the pastors here, excited as always to jump into God's word with you guys. And uh, to do that, I want to start us with a question, something to think about. What do you do when your best laid plans fail? Uh, Another way to frame it would be in the uh, beautifully eloquent words of the renowned poet and theologian, Iron Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> and if we're honest, at least in a lot of the conversations that I've had uh, with some of you guys, reflecting on my own life uh, over this last, these last few months, this season, some of us, man, life has been punching in the face. And, and for others, I think if we're really honest, we would have to admit that at times, we're actually the ones punching ourselves in the face. But what do we do with that? What do we do with these plans that we have, right? Like, I don't know why, but for some reason in my brain at some point, I started to believe that I could only start working out on a Monday. (laughs) Is anyone, am I the only? Okay, thank you, right? And so this thing happens where like something unexpected will come up like Sunday night or Monday morning. And I'm like, ah, I can't make it. And like, no one wants to start a workout on Tuesday. And then it's Wednesday and Thursday, and now it's close enough to the end of the week that like, what choice do I have to wait for? Monday, and then Monday comes, and something else comes up with my exercise, diet, whatever the thing is, it feels like no matter how hard I try, so often it's like, ugh, right? We make those commitments. We, make the, we have these plans, and then something comes up. I'll be a bit more vulnerable. I plan on being a really patient dad. But this has been a long summer. (laughs) And Monday's coming. Okay, those parents that you just heard from, their kids go to Tempe schools. Because school starts tomorrow, church. (laughs) That's the most responsive you guys have ever been. I'm glad I'm not the only one, right? I'm going to be a good dad. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to use a calm voice. And then first thing in the morning, I hear yelling and arguing and fighting. And you did this. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. And I try and I fail. What do we do with this when our, our plans, our efforts, our commitments, our promises are so hard to maintain? I'm going to be a loving spouse. I'm going to assume the best about my wife. I'm going to resolve to do whatever. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's that addiction that you have been trying to kick for years and years and you realize you need help. Maybe you've come to the point where you have realized there are no amount of parental controls that you can put on your web browser to solve this issue that has been ongoing for years. The, The money spending patterns, whatever the thing is, what are those things, the resolve of every single morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to pray and I'm going to read. I don't know what the thing is for you, but what do you do when no matter how hard you try, it's not good enough? That's what we're going to wrestle with today. Today, we're going to look at the end of Nehemiah. So chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. 
Uh, We're going to finish up our series uh, that we started early this summer. We've been walking through this incredible story, the book of Nehemiah. But before we do that, let's, let's orient ourselves a little bit, get a little reminder of where this story fits, right? We know in the beginning, God created everything good. We see sin vandalize, not destroy, but vandalize every aspect of God's good creation. And so God begins this plan of restoration, of redemption, Through one family in particular, Abraham and his wife and their descendants, and God makes a covenant with him. And he says, I'm going to bless you so that all nations will be blessed. He gives them an identity. They are to exist to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And we see this story unfold, Abraham and his wife, even though they're um, an older couple, a much older couple, they have kids and it's a miracle and they rejoice. And then those kids have kids and now a nation is being created, but that nation is, uh, falls under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so God delivers them through the Exodus and he tells them, I love you. I see you. I'm giving you an identity. Your identity is to be a light for the nations for the sake of the world. And so he gives them a law to form this identity, this identity that will turn them to cause from inward looking to outward looking, to live sacrificially for others because that's who God is. This is their role to display what God is like amongst the nations who don't yet know him. They are to be a light to these nations for the sake of the world. And when they get it right, things go well, but more often than not, they don't get it right. And so God sends them prophets to remind them of what their identity is, of who they are. They are called to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And so the prophets use fiery language to remind them of this identity because what we're talking about is God's mission plan. God's plan of redemption and of restoration for the sake of the world. And so eventually, after generation, after generation, after generation of unfaithfulness, God, for the sake of the world, says enough. And he brings in these nations and they destroy Jerusalem. They carry God's people into captivity. And God said, you didn't get it right in the land that I gave you. Now that you're in Babylon, who has destroyed your city, your temple, decimated your land, carried you off into slavery, now go live for them. In Jeremiah 29, 7, we see God says, you uh, are to seek the shalom or the welfare, the well-being, the prosperity of the city into which I have called you. For in its welfare, you will find your own. They are called to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And so after 70 years of captivity, God starts to bring his people back. And this is where we find Nehemiah. His pe- Some people have come back to the promised land, but the city is in ruins. And so Ezra comes and he reminds the people of the law and he begins rebuilding them that way. And then Nehemiah comes and he begins rebuilding the city, specifically the wall around Jerusalem. And so what we have been journeying through in this book of Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding how God has been rebuilding not only his people, but the physical space. He's been rebuilding them um, spiritually. We've seen them repent. We've seen them weep at the sins that they have committed and weep at the sins of the generations who have gone before them. And now here we are, we're gonna pick up in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people after the wall has been rebuilt, after they have repented, now they are making a new covenant. 
They're making a new covenant, promising, entering into this covenant with God that they will be that light to the nations for the sake of the world. And so the first thing that we're going to see as we pick up in our text is that God's people are committing, are covenanting, are called to be a distinct people, a distinct people. So you can read with me, starting in Nehemiah chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 28. So what Nehemiah says, says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. Here's three things that they're going to commit to. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath uh, or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So we see God's people commit to three things. There's this thing about marriage. There's this thing about the Sabbath. And then there's this thing about the the, the harvest and, and, and the temple. And so let's walk through this to see these ways that God's people are, are covenanting to be distinct. So the first one can seem a little strange to us in our context where it's like, wait, are we not supposed to like intermarry with people from uh, other nations? So what? don't read this as though, don't think as you're reading this about like Jim Crow segregation laws. That's not what's happening here. Think more of like God's people are are not called to marry people outside of God's people, okay? So this is less Jim Crow and more like when your youth pastor used to remind you like, hey, missionary dating is not a great idea, okay? Those people grew up in youth group like me, right? And so why, like, why is this a thing? Okay. First, what it's not, it's not saying that like people outside of God's people are like these horrible people run away, like steer clear of them. No, we have these clear uh, instances throughout the Old Testament story where people who are not ethnically Jewish are invited into God's people. Think of the book of Ruth, if you're familiar with that story. What this is like is, is uh, to use a sports illustration, the head coach doesn't send the playbook over to the opposing team. The head coach doesn't share like, like the plays with the opposing team's players. That wouldn't make sense. However, if a player from the other team gets traded, if they take off the jersey of the old team and now their identity is connected with the new team, now you get the playbook. This is not because they're like, you know, these horrible people that we need to like stay away from. This is because God's people are called to a distinct identity. Everyone is welcome, assuming the identity is God's people is taken upon them. They're welcomed into God's people. But what was happening is there was intermarriage with, without a change of identity. And so even the, as we'll see later, even the children, they can't speak the language. They can't read the law. They don't understand the prayers. They don't understand the Psalms, all these different things that are happening. So this is, this is what's going on here. God's people are called to a unique identity. 
right? Think militarily, right? Like the, the general is not going to call the other army and like, hey, guess where we're going to go tomorrow? That wouldn't make sense. But the people in the army, in the military, I, I was not in the army, so I'm sorry if I'm butchering these illustrations. They, they know what the plan is. God's people need to know what the plan is. What's the mission? Well, it's been clear. Light to the nations for the sake of the world. So that's the first thing they commit to is maintaining the faithfulness of their identity. The second thing we see is, is keeping the Sabbath for the sake of the watching world. See, God's people would have remembered They would have heard the stories of what it was like in Egypt. They would have been familiar with that story of Pharaoh who just forced them to work and work and work and no rest, no rest, no rest, no days off and continue to make more and more and more bricks because the empire needs it. So production matters. So push yourself as hard as you can, as fast as you can. Does this sound familiar? And in the midst of that context, God says, trust me. I will provide enough. You rest because God is generous, because our God provides, because he's in control, because he can do these things. We don't have to carry all of the burden. We can trust him. And that is one way God's people were a light to the nations for the sake of the world. They didn't have to keep going and going and going and doing and doing and doing. They could breathe deeply at times. They could relax. They could take a vacation sometimes, go on sabbatical. They could do these things that show a trust of who God is, of who God is, of who God is calling them to be, a people who are being a light to the nations for the sake of the world. You're going to get tired of hearing me say it, I promise. I promise. The third thing we see is this, this commitment to one another as a worshiping community. So that means it's going to cost. They're going to help provide for temple worship where the people would go to meet God, help to provide for some of the sacrifices for the priests that were were operating there. This This is how the community, the communal identity was formed. They would gather together and remember who God is, hear the stories told. And that takes, well, takes resources takes resources for the priests to do what they had to do and for the sacrifices and for all of the things that were going on in the temple. And the people says, this matters. This matters in our identity of being a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And so we will give even when it's difficult because our God is generous, because our God is sacrificial, not because we're mandated to, but because we want to show the watching world what our God is like. So here's the covenant. They're promising to do these things, to live in a distinct way. We use different language around here, right? We talk about being like a countercultural people. Don't think like a revolutionary. Think somebody who's swimming against the currents of culture. We, we talk about being an attractive community. That doesn't mean we're like only after like good looking people. What that means is we want to be a people who attract others in. We are called to embody these things for the, to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And so God's people commit to this distinct identity, to commit to being a distinct people. And then we get to the super fun section, this chapter and a half, all of 11 in the first half of, of 12, where we get a list of names, some of their jobs, 
and where they're from. So I got to tell you guys, man, as a preacher, when you get an opportunity to unpack a chapter and a half of names you can't pronounce, places you've never been, and jobs that just sound weird to us, you get really scared. (laughs) But this is what's going on here. God's people are always called to be a distinct people amongst actual people in actual places and in actual ways. This is not just abstract. This is not just the ideal, wouldn't it be nice? This happened on earth, a different part of the earth than where we live, amongst actual human beings who lived and breathed and got married and had kids and went to work and one day died. If our story was being written today, if there was like a modern day Nehemiah about redemption Tempe, then we would hear things like, these are the people who committed to the covenant. It's the Gosses. It's the Clonses and the Rodies. It's Sudeep and Betsy. It's the people in this room. It's the Ludwigs who came here from Pennsylvania. It's the Weinbaums who came here from New York. It's the Garials who own incredible restaurants. Go check them out. It'll bless your socks off. It's the Pikes. It's the list goes on and on. It's the Eric's who used to go to another redemption congregation and now he's here and we thank God for that. It's the people who are embodying this time and place where God has called you and me to be a distinct people where God has called you to embody the gospel in your job, whatever your job is. We see things that I'm like, what do we do with this? A temple servant. I'm not quite sure what a temple servant modern day equivalent will be, but I wonder if it isn't something like the faithful volunteers who walk up and down the rows after every service, picking up the little communion cups that we forget and leave on the ground. Thank God for them. I wonder if it's the people who show up and set up chairs and vacuum floors and make sure all of these things can happen. So what about you? What place are you finding in God's story? What things are being stirred up? What ways could God be inviting you to participate? What's coming to mind even now? Ah, never thought about how my job could allow me a unique opportunity to embody the gospel. We would love to chat with you about that. Never thought about those extra ways that, you know, we could step up. We could demonstrate God's story, maybe through our hospitality in our living room. Maybe it's through volunteering somewhere. Maybe it's through being sacrificial like they were. What are the ways that right now the Spirit is inviting you to be a part of this story? Because it matters. Ordinary names, ordinary jobs, and ordinary places matters enough to God that he included it in his word. That however many thousands of years later, we're reading and talking about it today in Tempe, Arizona. It's incredible. He invites us into this story. So we see God's people are called to be a distinct people. Not only that, they're called to be a joyous people. And so we'll pick up in chapter 12. I I let you know the first half of chapter 12 just continues this list of names. And we're going to pick up uh, in a few different spots that'll be up on the screen to give you a flavor of how the people respond to this covenant. 
You've made the covenant with God and now they're gonna celebrate. Spoiler, here we go. Chapter 12, verse 27 says this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And I'll remind you, just like I have to remind my boys, lyres are like a musical instrument, not somebody who tells lies. So we've been reading through the Psalms and they're confused by that. Uh, Verse 31, we're going to skip down a bit. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. They got the music going. We're going to keep skipping down. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Oh, amen. If that's not a beautiful picture of what mission is, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. This is what it's like to be a light for the nations. The joy is heard from far away. This is what it's like to live for the sake of the world. The joy was heard from far away. These people understand who God is and what he's doing in their midst. He's rebuilding what was broken down. I wonder if there's an area in your life that you would like some rebuilding. That's what God is doing. God's on the move here. God is getting stuff done amongst a people. How could they not rejoice? How could that not spill out into praise with the choirs going and the leaders are there and the people are there and everyone who had understanding was present and they're committing to this covenant. They're getting back on track and joy is the natural response. Not happiness. These are an honest people. This is not just happy clappy, although sometimes we feel happy and we should clap. Brandon will appreciate that. (laughs) But this is a sober-minded look at reality. Keep in mind the history here. They've heard the stories of the siege of Jerusalem. Some of them may even remember it. For the stories of the starvation as the Babylonian army surrounded the city, of the destruction, the destruction of the temple, of people being carried away into slavery, of being under a foreign army, a foreign empire's oppression. They haven't forgotten those things. Even more recently, the way they were understanding scripture is when they were brought back to the land, there was to be total restoration. We don't see that yet. So now how do we wrestle through God's promises? He was supposed to be faithful. He was supposed to restore, but the walls are torn down. The temple is in shambles. What is going on here? That was real. They were the ones who were building the wall with one hand on a sword and one hand on a brick because of the threat from outside. They didn't forget that. These were the same people who heard people from inside saying, we need to abandon this project. We don't think God is with us. We need to run for the hills and abandon Jerusalem. There was external and internal opposition. They're not putting their heads in the sand. They remember these things. These are the people who were moved deeply because of conviction of sin. They understood their own guilt not only their guilt, the guilt of their ancestors that led them to this time and place in these complex circumstances, they understood all of that and they rejoiced. How on earth could they rejoice? 
How could the joy be heard from so far away? This quote from Henry Now, and it helps me understand it at least. This is how he describes joy. He says, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away. Joy is not the same as happiness. We can be unhappy about many things, but joy can still be there because it comes from the knowledge of God's love for us. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. It is a choice based on the knowledge that we belong to God and have found in God our refuge and our safety and that nothing, not even death, can take God away from us. Amen. This is not happy clappy pretending like things aren't hard. This is understanding deeply the realities of our lives and choosing to have joy in who God is. This is not easy. This is not fake or put on. This is hard work. I think of, um, some of you guys may may know this, maybe not, uh, Jake and Lexi Slobodnik. Jake's one of the pastors here on staff. His wife, Lexi, is, is pregnant. And uh, a few weeks ago, her, um, her water broke. I think she was about 21 or 22 weeks pregnant. And they have been in the hospital for the last uh, number of weeks. And, and so uh, I, I talked with them. I have their permission to, to share the story. Um, you guys can imagine, I mean, just look around a room this size. It would feel super overwhelming if everyone reached out. Uh, So the number one way they asked for help in this time is please just pray for them, pray for Jake and Lexi and and baby Asher. Uh, Right now he's still staying in, but if you're familiar with this kind of situation, the longer he can stay in, the better. And so uh, my wife and I had gone to visit them and, uh, you know, she was was sitting with Lexi and and I went for a walk with Jake and just kind of touching base with him, checking in, how you doing? And... uh, I thought after I cried in the nine that it would like get it out, not at the 11. And Jake said, I know that I will hold my son. Said, I might hold my son in in the hospital. Um, I might be blessed enough to hold him like when we prayerfully one day we'll take him home and see him grow up and grow into a man and hopefully love Jesus, follow Jesus. He said, but if I don't, then I know I will hold my son when Jesus comes back and reconciles all things. That is where joy comes from. Not in the circumstances. In the hope of who God is and where we are heading according to his story. This is not happy, clappy, fake happiness. This is deeply felt joy that understands the brokenness of the world and can still see God in the midst of it, can still see what Jesus is doing, 
still knows this Jesus who left the comforts of heaven to walk around in the muck of us, who dwelt among us and gave us a hope, a joy in a better day that's coming. This is the joy that God's people are called to embody. It doesn't pretend that things aren't hard. This is joy that acknowledges the brokenness of the world and offers the world an answer. That offers the world a hope and a peace when it feels like no, none of that is possible. This is the hope that can only be found in Jesus. God's people are called to be distinct. God's people are called to be joyous in spite of the circumstances around them. And God's people are called to be dependent upon him. In chapter 13, um, a few things are happening. I'm going to describe them, and then we're going to read a, tr- a chunk to illustrate what's going on here, right? So if you guys can remember back, the people committed to three things, right? They're, they're, they're going to have faithfulness in their community, and there's implication for marriage in that. They're going to obey the Sabbath because God commanded it. And they're going to commit to this kind of worshiping community together. So taking care of the temple, sacrificial system, you know, paying uh, for the priest, those types of those three things. Okay. In chapter 13, what we see is intermarriage, neglect of the temple, disobedience on the Sabbath. The same three things that they committed to in chapter 13, they've broken all of them. And this is what's crazy, right? Because like, if you're a Hollywood producer, you stop the movie at 12. (laughs) Cut, that's a wrap, right? Man, the people get it. They got the covenant going. They're celebrating. The joy is heard from far away. Like this is the happily ever after. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible is brutally honest about sin. The Bible is brutally, unflinchingly honest that the only place we see perfection is in God. All of the heroes of the Bible, sorry to ruin your like Sunday school stories, like they are flawed, believe it or not. And so this is what we see. This is not, you do not, you post chapter 12 on Instagram. You don't post chapter 13 on it. That's not IG worthy, right? But this is what we see. God's people fail. They break the covenant fall apart. As soon as Nehemiah leaves, it's back to what it was before. Back to doing what their forefathers did that caused God to bring all of this uh, calamity upon them. And church, I wish I could tell you that this was wildly unfamiliar in my life. But if we're honest, when we're really honest, I think all of us can relate to this moment. So let's just get a little uh, taste. Uh, Chapter 13 Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 15. This is going to describe what's going on on the Sabbath, right? That's a pretty easy one to understand. Like, chill out on the Sabbath, trust God, don't do a bunch of stuff. They said they weren't going to buy things and do work. Here's what's going on. Verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah 
in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We are called to be a distinct people. We are called to be a joyous people. We can't do it. We can't do it on our own because at the, the foundation of who we are is we are a dependent people. We are dependent on God. As Christians, we are dependent upon Jesus. I've heard it said, the Christian life is not a life of perfection. It's a life of repentance. And the older I get, the more that rings true. But guys, what I've experienced for me is I feel like, well, this is how it came out. I was having a conversation with our preaching team. We're meeting, kind of talking about sermon prep. And Mark King, one of the pastors here, he asked me the question like, hey, what helps you depend on God? And I instantly felt like a fraud (laughs) because in my own life, what I see are these wild inconsistencies with huge swings back and forth. Either I'm going to grip my teeth and kind of white knuckle, try to do everything on my own, or then I'm going to realize like, oh, it's not about me. And so then I'm just going to get like lazy and lax and like, oh, Jesus, you take care of it. And then it's like the swing back and then back and forth, back and forth. And I have like spiritual whiplash in the midst of all of this, trying to figure this stuff out. And it hit me. That's actually what helps me be dependent. A long, hard look in the mirror coming to the end of my rope and realizing there is no other way. There is no other hope except in Jesus. There's nothing else I can do. There's no other style or technique or current trend or life hack or fill in the blank for what may be tempting to you. I need Jesus. Church, you need Jesus too. And we were joking before service, like, where are you going with the sermon? We need Jesus. Okay, so same as every week? Yep. (laughs) If you wonder what the secret sauce is at Redemption Tempe, we need Jesus. That's it. We need Jesus. We need Jesus when our plans crumble, when our commitments fail, when we relapse and fall back into that sin that we continually uh, perpetrate over and over and over again. We need Jesus. When life punches us in the face, we need Jesus. When we punch ourselves in the face, we need Jesus. When everything feels hopeless, we need Jesus. When the reality of our context feels like everything is being torn down and we need somebody to rebuild us, we need Jesus. When we are exhausted, from white knuckling our way through life, from trying to muscle up and wrestle into submission, everything we face, we can't do it. We need Jesus. Church, this is why it's called good news. The bad news would be you can't do it. The good news is you can't do it and you don't have to. Jesus did it already. And while we're trying to make covenants with our blood, sweat, and and tears, Jesus offers us a new covenant in his blood. 
a new covenant that was enacted on the morning after the night when he was bleeding sweat in the garden. After he had wept over the brokenness of Jerusalem, wept over the death of his friend Lazarus, those are the blood, sweat, and tears that we need. Our blood, sweat, and tears matter, but they will not get the job done. We need Jesus. We are called to a missional identity. We are called to live in a distinct way, to be a light to the nations for the sake of the world. And we cannot do that except through Jesus. We are called to be a joyous people. People who look at the realities of the brokenness in our life, in our community, and in our world, and we realize the only way we can do that is through Jesus. We are called to be a dependent people, understanding we cannot do it in our own strength. But the beautiful invitation is, through Jesus, we don't have to. So rather than gripping onto that thing so tightly, Jesus is inviting us. Jesus is inviting me. Jesus is inviting you to let go. You're going to mess it up anyways. <laughs> we let go when we come to a place of submission, understanding that he is Lord. Understanding that he is good. Understanding that he loves us so much that he laid his life down, went to the cross, was buried and resurrected for you so that you don't have to carry that burden anymore. So that you don't have to feel exhausted anymore. So that you don't have to choose to feel hopeless anymore. But so that we could come to new life with him. And as we think of all of the good Nehemiah has done, Nehemiah has built this incredible wall. Nehemiah has rallied God's people. Nehemiah has, was used by God to bring about repentance in God's people. That's great. Parts of that wall are still standing today. But Jesus is building a church that the gates of hell will never overcome. Jesus is preparing a city where every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered in his name to be in the presence of the Father. If you think that celebration was incredible, wait until this day that's coming. We get a glimpse. As we move to the table, we, this is a joyous communion day because this is a glimpse of what's coming. Church, I invite you to take the elements with me. We get to take the bread, which represents the body of Christ, which was given for you. Maybe this is the first day that's ever clicked. Maybe this is the first day that you realize you don't have to force it. You just have to receive. And so we do this in anticipation of the day that we will be feasting together, that we will be together with people from different places in time, different places around the globe who have come to faith in Jesus, that as Nehemiah rebuilt a wall, we all together will remember how Jesus has rebuilt the broken parts of our life. Church, I invite you to eat this in eager anticipation of the feast that will come. And now we come to the cup. 
typically the wine here, the grape juice that represents the blood that was shed in order to rebuild, in order to form a distinct people, in order to form a joyous people, in order to provide for a people who are dependent upon Jesus. This is a foretaste of the celebration that will come. If you like cheap grape juice, (laughs) just wait. Church, just wait. One day we will be celebrating together. I invite you at this time to take the juice in eager anticipation of that day. Mm. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, you are so good. Father, we thank you for the ways that your spirit has already been at work. Even before we showed up here today, we thank you for the ways your spirit was at work through singing. Father, the ways your spirit is at work through your word, the ways your spirit is at work through communion. You are speaking now here in this place. Jesus, tune our ears to your spirit. Father, show us, reveal those areas of our hearts that you are calling us to bring into obedience to you, where we are not being a distinct people, where we are not embodying what your gospel is like. Jesus, we need you to help us. Spirit, your word tells us that joy is a fruit of the spirit. And so we invite you, spirit, to communicate with us where are areas that we couldn't even imagine seeing joy open our eyes to where your presence is felt. Give us joy. When we are exhausted, Spirit, give us your power to choose joy. Not denying reality, but understanding where we are headed. Father, we are dependent upon you. Reveal those areas where we think we can do it on our own. Reveal those those patterns, Lord, that you would desire to bless us with godly sorrow that leads us to repentance, that leads us into your open, welcoming, loving, and holy arms. We can do none of this without you. And so would you lead us because you are good, because you love us, and because you care for the folks who don't yet know you. Jesus, increase our faithfulness, not just so we would be good people, but so that others would come to know who you are and to saving faith. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.